My name's Tom Jr. I'm an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink since July 20th, 1965. And for that, I'm very grateful. I was deeply blessed last night by my spiritual brother, Father Martin, who's been trying to make this Southern Baptist into a Catholic for 20 years now. (laughs) But he doesn't realize that we're more indoctrinated than the Catholics are. Uh, My mother, who I shall talk about later, was a black belt Southern Baptist. She is in heaven today directing God. (laughs) You think I'm kidding? When you get there, you'll see Grace saying, okay, God, do that. You forgot that. Do this. You know. What am I going to do with you, boy? Like she used to say to me. It's Mother's Day. How many mothers here? Raise your hands. May God deeply bless every one of you. You are the salt of the earth. And may God give some extra strength to those of you who are going to have to raise people like me. I lost my mother to Alzheimer's in 1994. She was almost 89 years old, and she was a rock. Dominant, overbearing, always right. We fought for years. And the last few years, and she was unable to show overt affection. She couldn't hug and kiss and things like that. She showed her love for you by giving you things, money and things like that. And in a way, I'm thankful for the Alzheimer's, Father, because when she got Alzheimer's, she couldn't get enough kissing and hugging on me. It was like she was trying to catch up for 59 years of not doing it. And we became dear friends. And she loved me to death, and I sat with her every day. She had a stroke, like you do with Alzheimer's many times. Uh, and, and she couldn't move, and she couldn't talk. And I sat, and I held her hand, and I could see her move her lips. I don't even know if I can say this. And what she was saying was, I love you, Tommy. I love you. And she always did. I'm a North Carolinian, really. I've just recently moved to Cincinnati about two years ago to marry this lady right over here. Stand up. Her name is Eileen, but I call her Fluffy because she reminds me of the Energizer Bunny, that little tail just getting down the road, you know. She goes a million miles an hour. She works hard. She's a wonderful nurse who loves patients. Never mind the hospital stuff and all the forms and all the papers and everything. She loves her patients. And the girls who work for her and the guys who work for her call her Mama Brady. And when I call, they say, it's Daddy, Mama. You know, I have some old friends in here. 
I remember Jamie Carraway. He used to drive down from Valdez, North Carolina, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to the Big Book Group and try to learn something. <laughs> and I think he did. He's turned into a fine man, and I love you, Jamie. And Wallace. And Jay. And some of my fellow North Carolinians are here, some of whom are also Southern Baptists. Now, Southern Baptism is my second disease. <laughs> and it's a lot like being an alcoholic. <laughs> once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a Southern Baptist, always a Southern Baptist. It will never change. I heard a story once about an old rock farmer up in West Virginia who had gone to town and came home with an old bull fiddle that had one string on it. And he loved that old bull fiddle, and he'd stand on the front porch and plunk at one bull, bull fiddle string. Plunk, plunk, plunk. Almost drive his wife crazy, you know? And she went to town one day, and she came back with the groceries and everything, came out to him, he's plunking away. And she says, you're not doing that right. I saw a man downtown, he had four strings on it, and he was moving his hands and making chords and playing different notes. And the guy just plunked away and said, maybe he's looking for something. I've found what I want. <laughs> and that's the way I feel about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I've always been a dreamer. And as the eagles say in their song, and it's so hard to change. Can't seem to settle down. Always dreaming. Heard a story about these two winos that were dreaming, and they, they shook two. Winos don't wake up. They shake two. <laughs> and they shook two under a bridge, you know, out in Los Angeles. And one of them turned to the other one and said, I had the best dream I've had in my life last night. He said, what did you dream? He said, I dreamed my mother called me home, gave me $100, told me to go spend the whole day at Disneyland. And the other drunk said, did you go? And he said, yeah, I went. I had the best time I ever had in my life. I saw Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, met Goofy personally. Went to all the shows, rode all the rides, most wonderful time I ever had. And the other old wino said, that ain't nothing. I had a better dream than that. He said, well, what was it? He said, well, I had a luxury apartment, two cases of Jack Daniels. Came a knock on the door. I opened it, and the two most beautiful women you ever saw in your life came through the door and started taking their clothes off. And the other one I was caught up in the story. He said, why didn't you call me? <laughs> he said, I did, but your mama said you'd gone to Disneyland. <laughs> These days, what they call an old-timer. I prefer the term long-timer. <laughs> there are several things that I have learned. Old-time ship does not give one wisdom. It gives one lots of experience to draw on, which, if combined with intelligence, makes wisdom. 
I've learned that my life does not belong to me. It's none of my business. I gave it to God. I gave it to God in the third step. I gave it to God in the seventh step. I quit playing God. It's His life. I belong to Him. It's His job I'm doing this morning. And this is a job for me. This is not fun and games. This is not a performance. I didn't come to tap dance for you. I'm God's kid. I belong to Him. And my life is none of my business. I've learned I'll never be perfect. Boy, that's hard to take. There's always going to be a light side of me and a dark side of me. And you know what the program does? It increases the light side and decreases the dark side. Nothing has been added. Nothing has been taken away. But you know, some days that dark side comes flying up. And I can be the biggest bastard you've ever seen in your life. And then there's the light side, which amazes me. I'll be sitting down and a person will ask me a question. They expect an answer because I'm an old timer. Please don't expect all the answers from us. And, you know, I'll listen to the person and words begin to come out of my mouth. And I hear those words and they're not my words. And they're the exact right words for that person. And my ego jumps in and says, remember that, Tom, that's good. <laughs> oh, you'll have to use that again. <laughs> One problem. The words are said, Father. I can no longer remember them. We channel. We channel, every one of us, from one day or two days or three months or six months or 20 years or 30 years or 50 years of sobriety, words and wisdom that are not ours. They come from the Father of lights. They're His words. He owns them. And no matter how my ego tries, I can't remember them. I'll sit at home and say, what did I say? Yeah. That was so good. <laughs> and I'd like to point out the simplicity of the program. I've learned that in these years. It is oh so simple. As my spiritual brother the father, I was blessed by your talk last night. I love you. He enlightened me by his simplicity. Little children are simple. They're the simplest things, beings on the face of God's earth. They understand things they don't know they understand because they're so natural. Little kids just be. They know how to be. You meet a little kid on the road, you say, Where you been? He said, Down, Yana. <laughs> say, Where are you going? I don't know. Well, what you going to do today? I have no idea. <laughs> and they know that there's only one answer to the question, why? Because. 
have a son. God, is he beautiful. 33 years old now, Jamie. About 225 pounds. Got a beautiful kid. Nine years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. He tells me he went to his first meeting. His sponsor took him home and he started reading the big book. And He said, it was my life, Dad. It was my life. And he said, the irony of it was it had been laying around the house for 27 years and I'd never looked at it. You've heard of armchair philosophers. Well, Jason, my son, was a potty chair philosopher. <laughs> when you, uh, when he was learning his potty chair, you had to sit there and talk to him. You wouldn't do it alone. And out of the mouths of children come these things. I remember one night I'm sitting there with him and he says out of nowhere, Hey, Dad, Jesus turns the power on. And I said, how do you know that? Did your mama tell you that? He said, no, sir. I said, did you learn that in Sunday school? He said, no, sir. I said, well, how do you know such a thing? He said, I just know. That's why. Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And with children, it's so much closer to the surface, Jamie. So much closer to the surface. The simplicity of the program for you newcomers. You think you're coming in here. and I, I don't know how many meetings I've been to that talk about the first three steps. And you hear some beautiful philosophizing. It's wonderful. You hear that intellect just clicking like the father was talking about last night. And you say, wow, man, that guy's smart. He also drunk. <laughs> I knew when I was a little boy that when things got beyond my control, I should go get somebody bigger to help me and give the problem to that bigger person and it would be solved. I knew that. Every one of you knew that. You did it a thousand times, didn't you? You went and got your daddy, you got your mama, you got your big sister, you got a stick, you got something to even up that situation. When I was growing up, I had a friend named Ronnie. Ronnie was the nastiest kid I ever knew in my life. He rubbed boogers everywhere. <laughs> He'd pick his nose and put them in his hair and twist it up. <laughs> Looked like pig pen. And I loved Ronnie, and we'd take him home sometimes, you know, and mother would meet us at the front door with two, two tubs. And Ronnie went in one of them, his clothes went in the other before he went in the house. And I loved him, and he loved my parents. And his mom and dad were street drunks, and he didn't have a chance. And I was afraid of Ronnie. I don't know if it's the smell or what. But I could beat him at two things. I could outrun him, and I could beat him shooting marbles. Any of you fellows remember, probably have to be older, remember shooting marbles? Go down to the five and dime, get your nickel bag of marbles, you know, some roly-polies and things like that, and... The rules of the game were simple. You win, you get all the marbles. <laughs> well, I'd beat Ronnie, and, and uh, he'd take my marbles.
and I knew that wasn't right, but I was scared of Ronnie. <clears throat> so I'd go home and get my daddy. I'd say, Daddy, Ronnie got my marbles. He said, you win, son? I said, yes, sir. That's not right. Let's go get them. We go over to Ronnie's, and I think he stole my marbles just to get to see my daddy, who he adored. And he'd say to him, Ronnie, did you get Tommy's marbles? He'd say, yes, sir. Did you win, son? No. Ronnie, that's not right. Give him his marbles back, and he'd give them back. <laughs> now think about the first three steps. The first step says, I've lost my marbles, and I can't get them back. The second step says, I know if I get someone bigger to help me, I might get my marbles. <laughs> and you go get that bigger one, and you get your marbles back. That's how simple it is, just like a game of marbles. Knowing intuitively you're beyond your own limits automatically turns you to thinking, about someone bigger who can help you. And it's always been there. I've been sober a long time. I enjoyed my sobriety. The last ten years of my sobriety have been the worst. Don't expect to trip through the tulips all the time, like Father Martin said last night. You know, the last ten years I had cancer. Emphysema, deep vein thromboblebitis. My mother got Alzheimer's. My wife left me. My sponsor got Alzheimer's. Following up closely on that, my mother died. The wife, who I loved very deeply, was killed in a head-on collision. My sponsor died. My two closest friends in Alcoholics Anonymous died. And then to top the whole thing off, in 1997, my daughter died of this disease. And I'm grieving. There's nothing like losing a child. She was so beautiful. And so deluded by alcohol. It had that ring in her nose, Father. And she wouldn't admit it. And she went to bed one night and her heart stopped. She had drunk so much that she had weakened her heart and her inner organs so much that her heart just stopped. And I love her. And I loved all these others. Life goes on. As Tim, what's his name, the country singer says, things change. And so don't come in here expecting to tiptoe through the tulips and be happy all the time. There's no happiness without suffering. There is suffering after sobriety. A lot of people come in here to get sober and they think all they got to do is read the big book, pat their butterfly on the ass and fly off to glory. <laughs> it's not that way. But there have been good times. And I'm grateful. And to me, real gratitude always translates 
into responsible behavior towards your brothers and your sisters and your God. Okay, God, I'm hurting. I don't want to talk tonight. That's the last thing I want to do. And I go and I talk. Now, I'm one of those people who always believe that if something feels good, it should be done to excess. <laughs> if it feels good, you overdo it. Well, sometimes I overeat. Certainly, I overdrank. You know? I remember when I found out sex felt good. <laughs> I was by myself, just like all of y'all were. And in spite of warnings from my mama that, you know, parts of my anatomy were going to rot off and I was going to go blind, I said, it feels so good, I just got to keep on till I'm nearsighted. That was one of my first successes. I'm a perfectionist, an idealist, a romantic, as I said, a dreamer, extremely hypersensitive person, a person who likes to do everything at once and do it all perfectly, like a ping-pong ball jumping all over the place. I drive Eileen crazy. We'll be talking about something, and I completely change the subject right in the middle because it came to my mind. While she's ping-ponging off the walls, I'm, I'm tennis-balling off the walls. It's, it's like watching a tennis match sometimes. I am that way. I am that way. I was born in a very small mill village town in North Carolina. And as long as I can remember back in my life, I was afraid. I didn't know what I was afraid of, but I was afraid. I had the finest father who ever walked the face of this earth. One of my goals is to be like him. He was the kindest, gentlest, sweetest man I have ever known. After I got married and had kids, when he would come to visit, Within five minutes, the word would spread, and every kid in the neighborhood would be over there saying, Big Daddy's here, Big Daddy's here. And my daddy would walk down the street, followed by all these children and all these dogs. <laughs> he didn't say a word, Jay, you know? And all of them were right behind him, just happy as a toot. You know? I'll tell you something, y'all. When little children and dogs love you, you've got something going for you. It came to him automatically. My mother was a black belt Southern Baptist, as I told you. It was church, church, church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meeting, Thursday night choir practice, Monday night, Wednesday night family nights. We were in there all the time. I used to laugh at my mother because she always wore black or dark color to church. And I could hear her on Sunday mornings, and she'd go into her bedroom, and she'd put on this corset. Now, my mother was a pretty lady. I'm not talking about a girdle. I'm talking about a corset 
one of them things you, you let out all your breath and you, you string it up, you know. And I could hear her suffering in there. And she'd come out in that black dress, and I thought God liked dark colors, you know. I said, Mother, why do you do that to yourself? And she gave me one of those mama answers. You ever get a mama answer? Because it's Sunday. She couldn't move anything but her head. She looked like a buzzard sitting on the fence, you know. That's all she could do. Now, on my block in this middle town, we were poor folks was my extended family. That's what they used to call it. Everybody's mom and daddy was my mom and daddy, and everybody's kid was everybody's kid. I stayed at your house. I ate at your house. I misbehaved at your house. One of their parents would discipline me. They had carte blanche. What's happened to the extended family? We did everything together. The lady next door was named Lena. I'll never forget Lena. Best cook on the block. Best eater on the block, too. Lena was kind of heavy, you know. And I had this snow white hair. Nobody called me Thomas or Tom or Tommy. Everybody called me Puddinghead. <laughs> and I used to love to hug Lena. Man, you had a breast in each ear. <laughs> and she rubbed me on the head and said, I love you, Puddin'. And I just go, mmm. <laughs> And if she was here today, I'd do the same thing. <laughs> and there was my buddies, John Q. and Bill Sewell, you know, and Martha. Martha's the first little girl I ever played doctor with. Never have forgot that experience. And old man Lucas would come by the house sometimes, you know, with his wheelbarrow. He'd go in down and slop the hogs. Y'all ever slop any hogs? And he'd say, come on, Puddin'. Put me in that wheelbarrow. We'd go down to the hog pen. He'd slop the hogs. and I'd go over in the creek and catch some crawdads and go wading and drink some of that nice, clean water, which my daddy had taught me was best when it was going over the rocks, just after it went over the rocks. Just being. And I'd walk home, and I was just being. I wasn't going nowhere. I wasn't coming anywhere. You know, I was just taking in what God had made. And I enjoyed life. We went to the movies every Saturday. It cost nine cents. That'll tell you how old I am. Five cents for a box of popcorn. A man next door named Q Beard ran the theater. So we ate all the popcorn we wanted, and he knew we didn't have any money, so we got in free. But for that nine cents, you could see a double feature western, a couple of good cereals like Flash Gordon and, you know, Buck Rogers. Y'all remember them? Good cartoons, not this monster mess that you see now. I'm talking po 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 porky pig and, <laughs> and Wiley Coyote. Wiley's one of my role models, by the way. 
Wiley knows damn well he's not going to catch that, that, that bird. But he keeps trying. So if you're having trouble in Alcoholics Anonymous staying sober, be like Wiley. Just don't buy your materials, your big book, from the Acme Company. <laughs> These Western stars are my heroes. Hop along, Cassidy, file, Martin, you remember? The Durango Kid, Rocky Lane, Sunset Carson. My favorite cowboy was Lash LaRue. They called him Lash because he carried a bull whip. You draw down on Lash, he'd whip the gun out of your hand. Coolest cowboy I ever saw. <laughs> and old Lash, one day I was watching him, and he was standing on the roof of the saloon, and he'd run all the bad guys out of town, and he popped that whip, and he whistled, and his horse came running by. And he popped that whip, and he jumped in the saddle and rode off into the sunset, and so help me, I cried. And I sat through that movie again and again and again. I said, nothing like Lash. He's wonderful. Well, you got to emulate your heroes, you know. <laughs> so I went home, got a piece of rope, went up on the garage. John Q. had a pony named Beauty. I said, John Q. walked Beauty past the garage. And he did, and I popped my rope, and I whistled, and I leapt into the saddle. And when I hit it, you could have heard me scream in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. <laughs> now, I don't know if that was a spiritual experience or not, Father. <laughs> I do know I've never forgotten it. And I've always wondered about Lash LaRue. <laughs> Man, you go to my house, you see pictures of Lash, Lash LaRue, knife. People from all over the country send me Lash LaRue memorabilia. You know? I had a good life, but I was afraid. Not a lot of reason to be afraid. I was the ugliest baby you ever saw. People say, how you know that? I said, my mama told me. <laughs> she said, son, I, I, I've never seen an ugly baby in my life until you was born. I wouldn't take you out of the house for six weeks. You was on the face of the earth. I didn't want anybody to see you. I talked to a psychiatrist about that one time. He said, oh, that must have been traumatic for you. I said, no, sir, it wasn't traumatic. I've seen my baby pictures. Mama's right. I was ugly. <laughs> and as I grew up, things didn't get much better. You know? I was one of those skinny little old kids. Shoulder blades protruding out the back. And I tried to correct that by bringing my shoulders around and my chest would disappear. <laughs> and Mama made me wear knickers. Any of you guys have to wear knickers? Somebody told me not long ago, hey, knickers are going to be in style pretty soon. I said, not on my ass, they ain't. <laughs> you know? 
and I had freckles. Oh, my God. All over my animal soles of my feet. I'm talking freckles. And I didn't like them. And on top of all this, I had this shock of snow white hair, which caused everybody to call me Puddinghead. Now, I wanted to be a macho man. I didn't like me. I did not like me. And my mother had four of the biggest macho uh, brothers you've ever seen in your life. And the most macho of all was my Uncle Dud. He was a motorcycle cop back in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees, you know. And he had a harness across here with silver bullets in it, the pearl handle 38 sitting high on his hip. And he smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion. And he squeaked when he walked. By God, that's macho. <laughs> and you know something? The only time I wasn't afraid was between when I was behind my Uncle Dud on that Indian motorcycle, that police motorcycle, and I'd wrap my arms around him, and I wasn't afraid. Even then, I needed a connection with a higher power and didn't know it. Connection is the basic bottom line of spirituality. We is the word. I is the word of sickness and death for us. We is the word. And we're all disconnected. And then we get connected and things start happening. You say, I don't have I don't know. Must have something to do with those meetings. That book, that sponsor I hate. You know. He was my hero, Dud was. And we need heroes in AA. We do not need idols. People build idols and expect perfection from them. And the only reason they build them is when they find one little imperfection, they can destroy it. Heroes are the guys and gals that get out there and they fall down, they stumble, they make a lot of mistakes, they get back up and they try again. I wouldn't be alive today but for my heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. Chuck C., Bob White, Jack Boland. I could go on and on and on. What I say they taught me. What I say are their words. I know nothing else but what they taught me. Harry Barrett, he taught me. A lot, Jamie. A lot. I thought I would love a person and be as hard as nails. I was always uneasy, restless, irritable, discontented. Now, when I was 15 years old, I was in a hotel room up in Greensboro, North Carolina, with my friends Egghead and Ducky and Boots. And they called a cab driver, and he came back, and they gave him seven and a half, and he gave him a bottle of fluid. And the label on it said, Cream of Kentucky. And I said to Egghead, what do we do with this? He said, why are you calling him Egghead? Was he wise? He said, no, his head looked like an egg. 
He said he'd drink a water glass of it fast as he can. Did he drink a glass of water? I followed instructions to the letter. And the fear disappeared. And the feeling of being outside of everything. Appeared. It was absolute magic. It was extremely valuable. Valuable. Remember, when you ask an alcoholic to give up alcohol, you're giving up, asking him to give up what has been his value for a long time, his chief value, his number one value, his God, if you will, on the chance that there's a real one. That's a lot to ask. By the time I was 23, I'd had over a thousand stitches taken in my face alone as a result of drinking. My mom and dad's staunch Baptist well-known in the town where we lived. And I'm making the social pages, you know. <laughs> drunk and disorderly, drunk driving, resisting arrest, assault. And I'm a kid who went through school with straight A's. I never made below an A until I took my first drink. I am a brilliant man. And I mean that. I went through college and majored in philosophy and history and minored in religion and Greek and English and had a 3.94 average, was the soloist with the college choir, sang with the alumni quartet, founded the college dance band, had my own combo playing at a local steakhouse, and got all those grades and everything and graduated. And I had so many scholarships, the school owed me money. And I was drunk 75% of the time. Not bragging. Didn't learn anything. Didn't learn anything. Just a good test taker with a photographic memory. I was dying. I was killing myself. I knew I was killing myself. I knew if I took a drink, what was going to happen. You see, I'm an alcoholic. That means, I, to me, I live in a body that will not handle alcohol. When I put alcohol into this body, this body sends me a clear, concise, and immediate message. Get some more of that stuff and get it right now. Easy to understand, isn't it? Get some more of that stuff and get it right now. And they tell me in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the beautiful part about it is the simplicity of it, remember, that I have a problem of the mind. I'm preoccupied. I'm obsessed with this valuable feeling that I get from this alcohol. No matter what it's doing to me on the other side, I can forget it in favor of the notion that this pain will go away if I'll take a drink. And what sets us apart from every other therapy is it says we're spiritually sick too. And listen, read the book. It says once the spiritual malady is overcome, then 
we straighten up mentally and physically. What's spiritual malady? Control. I like to control things. I like to be in control. I want people to do it my way, and I manipulated, used, tap danced, did anything I had to do to get my way, and other people don't like that. And it built a wall between me and them. I built it. And I became disconnected from my brothers and my sisters, and therefore, I believe, from my God. And what does the AA program say? Hmm? Quit playing God. Look at the stones in the wall. Identify them. Talk them over with somebody. Make sure you didn't miss them. Make a hole big enough in that wall where you can get through it. Reconnect with your brothers and your sisters and therefore with your God. And you'll live sober. As long as you don't break the connection. Can you imagine me trying to explain my sobriety and that kind of simplicity to an intellectual? He would say to me, Tom, it must be awfully, you must be an awfully strong person to have recovered from alcoholism. I say, no, sir. I'm weak. And when I admitted my weakness, I started getting well. And he would say to me, Tom, you must be, you must have fought very, very hard to win the victory over alcohol. And I say, no, sir, I surrendered. And he says, that makes no sense. And to an intellectual, it doesn't. I'm talking from the heart. He's trying to listen with his intellectual ears. It doesn't make sense. He said, well, what do you do? I said, I go to meetings. Oh, group therapy. <laughs> no, sir, just a bunch of drunks get together and talk. <laughs> Lie to each other, mostly. <clears throat> And he says, that makes no sense. And I said, I know it doesn't. He said, what else do you do? I said, well, i got a sponsor. Oh, a psychotherapist. <laughs> no, sir, he's a plumber. <laughs> and he says, rightly so, that makes no sense. I said, I know it doesn't. He said, well, what else do you do? I said, well, we got this program. Ah, now. The great psychologists and metaphysicians and theologians got together and put you together a program. And I said, no, sir. It was put together by a bunch of drunks using ideas they had stolen from other people. <laughs> Check me out sometime. Read an old book published in 1930 called The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. Bill plagiarized that book so heavily there was hardly a cover left on it. <laughs> Everything we know about alcoholism we got from Richard Peabody. <laughs> then go check out the Oxford group. Check out their four practical spiritual activities, which were expanded into our six steps and into our twelve steps. Nothing new, Father. You said it last night. Nothing new. Oh, Ecclesiastes was right. There is nothing new under the sun. And he said, well, who founded this outfit? Now I got him. 
I say, a bankrupt stockbroker and a proctologist who couldn't find his own ass. I came to you when I was about 23 years of age. I don't remember why I came. I guess I was just in pain. It's funny what pain will do. It'll motivate you a little bit. And I looked over here, and there was 12 traditions on the wall and 12 steps on the wall. And I said, hmm, man up front with a blue book. I said, all i got to do is memorize those and those and what's in that book. And they'll put me up front. And they'll listen to what I'll have to say, and I'll be in control. I'll be president of Alcoholics now for about six months. <laughs> and I went to memorizing. I can quote great portions of the big book to you right now. Great portions. I don't do that anymore. I ain't got to. I ain't got to. You know? Sure enough, they put me up front, and I delivered some of the windiest dissertations you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> and during the next seven years, it was all of the paper knowledge, the verbal knowledge. The longest I ever stayed dry was 89 days. And I knew it was 89 days because I had one red chip. We give a red poker chip in North Carolina for 90 days. I had one I'm pasted on that 90th day. And I skipped all the steps and got down to the meditation. That's all I really needed. And I'd sit there and chant, <laughs> waiting for my spiritual awakening to happen. You're supposed to get in what they call the lotus position with your legs crossed up. And I've already had so many automobile wrecks and busted so many bones, I'd have to get my wife to help me get in the lotus position, and then I couldn't get out. And it hurt. And 89 days. And on the 90th day, I rested. I got drunk. Good people worked with me. I met some of the meanest people in Alcoholics Anonymous I have met in my life. They called them old-timers, and I hated them. It was all ugly. It was all profane, and they were all stupid. And every one of them talks in circles. Remember one of them, Burlington, North Carolina. He's dead now. Bill Crumpler. He's one of my heroes today. I hated him. I called him Grumpy. Grumpy said the same thing every Tuesday night. He'd pull his nose, which looked like a pickle, rub his hand through his hair. Remember, Jamie? Rattle the change in his right pocket. Always sat second row, second chair next to the wall in that group. That was his seat. You didn't sit in it. And say the same thing every Tuesday night. Don't put these people down. He did it for almost 40 years. Last time I saw Grumpy, I was 17 years sober. And I walked into his hospital room where he was dying with bone cancer. And his finger came up to me and he said, Boy, you'll never make it.
Grumpy used to wait for me at meetings. He denied it, but I knew he was waiting for me. He waited at the door. I'd come in the door. He'd say, how you doing, boy? I didn't like that. I'd say, fine. And he'd back me into a corner with that finger and tell me how I was. He had x-ray vision. That scared me. Now, always talking in circles, you know. Boy, you can't think your way into good living. you got to live your way into good thinking. Y'all ever heard that down there, old-timers down here? And this one I hated. By this time, I'm a pre-ministerial student. How come you're always looking for God, boy? God ain't lost. <laughs> Grumpy tried his best to help me. I always called when it was too late, you know. Test patterns off on TV. All the booze is gone. I say, well, heck, I need some help. <laughs> Then's when I call. I called him about three o'clock one morning. He didn't let me say a word. He said, boy... Don't you ever call me drunk again. As a matter of fact, don't you ever call me again. If you want to get sober, you know where we meet. Don't call me to come get you. You can walk. And he said, I don't care if you ever get sober. <laughs> Boy, I said things I've never said before about that man. <laughs> and today, as God is my witness, I bless his heart and soul. Seven years. On or about July 20th, I came to. And I mean that. I was on five years probation. I was supposed to go on the chain gang for two years. All drinking offenses. I was working at a college as a teacher, and I was about to lose that job because of my drinking. And I realized something for the first time. That I couldn't drink. That's no big deal. But then I recognized the second part. And I can't quit. God, I can't quit. And I made a profit out of Grumpy. I walked back to Alcoholics Anonymous to the Queen City group in Charlotte. And I went late and I left early and I sat on the back row. I didn't figure anyone wanted anything to have to do with me. But they'd catch me and say, we're glad you're here. We need you. Keep coming back. And I'd think to myself, they don't know who I am. Or they wouldn't say these things. And then they'd shiver me to the soles of my feet by saying, we love you. And I felt totally unlovable. I hated my guts when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Literally hated my guts. Many of you know what I mean. Even today, after 35 years, I still find myself putting myself down. Very often, unable to accept a compliment, unable to accept criticism. That's that old hate. It's not all gone yet. It still sits in there and I have to watch for it. And the tenth step says we continue to watch. Self-observation. 
I know I did it one night in a meeting with my son, and we came out of the meeting afterwards, and he said, heard a good tape on that. I said, who made it? He said, you did. <laughs> and maybe you need to listen to it, Dad. And he said, by the way, and he's bigger than I am, don't you ever put yourself down as my father in front of me again. Don't you ever do that. I'll whip your ass. <laughs> what others see, we're blind to in the beginning. And I got to watching this man in the group, and he smoked these expensive Cuban cigars. He waved them like a wand is what he did. And he dressed real nice, and he drove a Lincoln Continental, and that was kind of attractive. But what really drew me to him was his eyes. I couldn't look at his eyes. They were like flames. And I sidled up to him one night, and his name was Harry. I said, Harry, I don't want to die. Will you sponsor me? And he turned on me, and he said, boy, I have heard about you. They tell me you're not just an alcoholic. They tell me you're crazy. And I'll sponsor you, yes, on one condition. I said, what's that? He said, we'll do it my way. And I don't know but one way in this in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. You willing to do that, boy? I said, yes, sir. At that moment, Father, that I said, yes, sir, I had surrendered. You know, we talk eloquently about surrender. Until you're willing to take directions without question from your sponsor, you are not surrendered in any sense of the word. Don't fool yourself. You know how brilliant your sponsor seems until you ask him to be your sponsor and then they go stupid on you immediately. <laughs> Harry was no exception. He went stupid. First thing I want you to do is come to meetings early. I want you to go around and shake everybody's hand and ask them how they're doing. I said, I don't want to come early. I don't want to shake their hand. I don't care how they're doing. Why do I have to do that? Boy, you don't ask me why. You do what I tell you to do. Now, a lot of people come out of treatment. They have a counselor. I have a master's in counseling. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> And your counselor, if he told you something like that, would say, how does that make you feel? <laughs> Harry didn't give a shit how it made me feel. He, he said, I don't care how you feel. There's certain things you got to do. This is not a program of feelings. It's a program of action. No one cared about my feelings more. Don't get me wrong. But he knew I had to do certain things. So I did it. I knew he was watching me, so I didn't miss anybody. And I stared at the floor and I mumbled. Uh, 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 all the way around the room, didn't miss anybody. <laughs> A few weeks, my eye level came up. Saw some shins. <laughs> Saw some knees. Saw some hips. Wish I had never seen some of them hips. And finally, I was looking them in the eye, and I did care how they were doing. And 
beauty of beauties. I knew they cared how I was doing. And I connected. And I belonged. And I was a part of the we. And God, what an experience. I was over about six months and I was sitting up at the uh, college where I was working. I was eating a bag of lunch and and I remember it just descended on me like out of a cloud. You haven't wanted a drink in over three months. And I cried like a baby. I said, I don't know where this came from. It had something to do with those meetings and that man that yells at me all the time. I think I'll keep doing those things. Remember after I took my seventh step and I was in a chapel down at St. Simon's Island. And behind the pulpit, they have a stained glass window and the carpenter's in it. But there's no cross. And I kept looking at that window and I said, but where's the cross? Clears a bell through my mind. It's been removed, Tom. And so has yours. That's reality. We talk sometime at meetings and we say, well, this is good in here, but it won't work in reality. This is reality. I started getting sober. Man, when I'd been sober three months and went up and picked up that red chip, you'd have thought I'd been sober 97 years. The place went crazy. They called Grumpy when I picked up my six-month chip. Said he'd been sober six months. He said, you're a damn liar. <laughs> said, I got the flu, but I'll drive down there to see this. And he drove down with the flu to see me pick up a six-month chip. And he beamed all over. And Harry's one of my heroes. And I held his hand while he died. And there was a fellow named Bob White that used to call me Sugar. And Bob White thought I was a genius. He lived down in Texas. A lot of y'all knew Bob. I took a fifth step with him one time. I had crafted this thing perfectly out of 12 and 12. This is Bob White I'm taking this thing with. I got done with that fifth step and he says, is that all? And I said, yes, sir. He said, Sugar, for a genius, you're the stupidest son of a bitch I ever met in my life. And he walked out of the room. Because he knew that I put so much time into being so meticulous and perfect, I had missed the whole problem that was eating me alive. What perception that man had. He scared me to death the first time I ever met him. I came down off the plane. He picked me up in a big bear hug in his arms and kissed me on the cheek. And I said, oh, God, is this the way they do it in Texas? <laughs> I could go on and on and on and list my heroes, you know, in time passed. And I picked up, getting ready to pick up my year chip, and I was writing my speech. I knew just when the laughs were going to come, just when the tears were going to come. I had it all crafted perfectly. <laughs> See, the first year in the program, I couldn't do nothing but cry. 
If they asked me to read, I'd get up there and go to Balling. And my sponsor would come and say, come on, son, sit down. Your time will come. The first time I ever finished the preamble, the place went wild. <laughs> and then I cried. <laughs> and I got up to pick up this <laughs> one-year chip, you know, and, and I couldn't say a word. I was bawling. And they kept counting. The little old gray-haired man back in the back of the room came walking up and picked up a 24-year chip, 25-year chip. I was 24 years behind this man. I'd never noticed him, you know. He was always there, but God humiliated me that night. Or better still, He humbled me. Because here's another hero, Wilson Booty. Calm and quiet. I could go over to his house and I'd be torn out of the frame and he'd light his pipe and I'd go. Did me the honor of sharing his fifth step with me one time. And he came in in Cleveland and went through the East Cleveland Clinic. And when he died, he had 48 years sobriety. Strange heroes, aren't they? A machinist, an oil millionaire, playboy lawyer, a home builder. There's lots of carpenters and plumbers and everything that come through there that have touched my life. And I'm sober because of them. And I love them. And they ain't dead. Not as long as I'm walking the face of the earth, Jay, they're not dead. Not as long as Jamie's walking the face of the earth, are they dead? Chuck C. Called him Papa. He called me son. Last time I saw him, he was eating oxygen because he was about to die from emphysema, which I have. He said, how you doing, son? I said, I'm doing pretty good. He said, well, have you made any decisions lately? I said, yeah, I've decided I don't want to be you. He said, you mean you want to be you and not me? And I said, yeah. He said, hallelujah. <laughs> and he just cackled like cackle it is, you know. Because see, when I first came in the program, I found out he was considered the best speaker in the program, and he wasn't going to be for long, by God. <laughs> and I could go on and on, but I won't. I won't do that. I belong in this program. When I am with you, whether I ever know your name, I am connected to you by a golden thread which comes out of the navel of God and connects us all. I'm here to pass along to you Part of that golden thread that runs through our big book and our literature and our people. So that you can pass it along to somebody else. So that they can pass it along to somebody else. It scares me when I look at the big book and I look at the forward to the first edition. And the word we is used 20 times or more. And I look at the second edition it's used only 18 times. 
I look at the forward to the third edition. It is used now. Check me out. That bothers me. Somebody might cut the thread accidentally. Our traditions are vital. If we don't stick to our traditions, AA can and will die. It'll exist as an institution, but the golden thread, the spirit, will be gone. The healing power will no longer be there. I must not let that happen. You must not let that happen. Study the traditions. Talk about them. Don't just read them at a meeting and toss them aside. Without them, we wouldn't be here today. I reckon time me shut up. I don't want to, but I reckon time me shut up. Chris Christopherson is, to me, one of the greatest poets that ever walked the face of the earth. He and James Taylor, the poets. Christopherson wrote a song one time, and the words of it go like this, and I'd like to close as if it were a conversation between my daughters, my son, and my mother, and me. And I hope I can remember the words. My daughter Crystal says, Daddy, why aren't you famous? I said, Christy, I think I am. Because all the people that you see here today came out here to give me a hand. But their applause isn't what really matters. It's what I can feel from their hearts. And if today I made dreamers of some who have lost them, or made friends with a few who were scared, or if there's one new believer who came here a critic and I told him that somebody cared, then Christy, I always feel famous. Even though I'm not seen on TV, I get all the attention my ego can handle. Doing this live and for free. You see, I do it live and for free. My other daughter, Frances, says to me, But Dad, why are you lonely? I said, Francis, I guess I am, because there are a few people that I miss today who aren't here to give me a hand. But you know, in some ways, they're closer than the people out on the front row. And if I'm quiet, I can hear Chuck C.'s heart beating rhythm. You see Bob White driving his car. And there are preachers and poets that I never met, like Bill Wilson, who hasn't gone far. So I'm alone, but I'm not really lonely. I just got a group you can't see. They give me all the companionship my faith can handle doing this talking with me. You see, they do this talking with me. And my son says, but Daddy, I think you're crazy. I said, son, that's what keeps me sane. <laughs> I was born with a strange sense of humor to go with a strong sense of pain. And I found that there's nothing so serious that it can't hold its own in a joke. So I might smile at stories about people suffering and laugh about losing my hat and make people think I give talks without answers because I tease them and hide where they're at. But I also love things that are simple. And a smile is the last thing you'll see on the face of this crazy old outlaw.
laughing out loud because I'm me. I laugh like this because I'm free. Then my black belt Southern Baptist mother says, But Tommy, do you love Jesus? And I said, Mother, doesn't it show? She said, I've been listening to you for an hour, and frankly, i got to say no. <laughs> because if you did, you'd be famous. Big concerts and Christian TV. You'd be so well known that you'd never get lonely, you'd never be crazy or weird. But you've got to give up making talks without answers, and you ought to shave off that old beard. <laughs> and I said, well, I love you too, Mother. But you sure found it different than me. You see, I do my best. And I do it like Jesus, because He did it live and for free. Thank you.